Bonjour. Welcome to episode 20 of You Don't Have to Yell. I'm your host, Dan Sally, and we are in our final installment for Black History Month. Now, over the course of this month, we've talked about how the idea of white superiority started when the very first Europeans arrived in the New World and used the age-old human mechanism of otherizing darker-skinned people to justify taking their land and enslaving them. Now, when the Founding Fathers wrote, All Men Are Created Equal, that set off a series of unexpected questions as to whether that included slaves brought over from Africa. And the philosophy of racial hierarchy began to evolve into what was legalized segregation in the U.S. and in Brazil, an unspoken cultural hierarchy based on skin color. Now, finally, we saw that as the struggle against legally sanctioned racism in the South went on, a more subtle form of segregation took place in the North that confined African-Americans to specific neighborhoods, restricted their access to home ownership, and put their children in inferior schools. So to round out the month, we're going to go back to Brazil with Vanya Peña López, a professor of sociology at Bloomfield College and author of Confronting Affirmative Action in Brazil, University Quota Students and the Quest for Racial Justice. In, a, in this conversation, we discuss the birth of the civil rights movement in Brazil, and similar to in the Northeast United States, the ongoing problem of fighting racism in a society that, number one, denies it, it exists, but unlike the Northeast United States, a society where virtually everyone can lay claim to being of African descent in some form. I'll be back at the end with closing comments. Until then, Vanya Peña López. One of my favorite words in Brazilian Portuguese is, and I don't know if I told you this before, is imprevisto. No, uh, you didn't. I didn't. Yeah. So imprevisto is, and again, for the, uh, and for the, the folks listening, imprevisto is a word in Brazilian Portuguese that effectively translates to unforeseen. But what, mm -hmm. it, what it really means is that something happened and it kept me from doing what I was originally intending to do. So right. if you're late for a meeting, you don't necessarily, it wasn't that you got stuck in traffic or the elevator didn't work and you had to climb nine flights of stairs or... Yeah, there's a tidal wave. It's just an imprevisto. Aconteceu um imprevisto. Yeah, aconteceu um imprevisto. Yeah, we had an unforeseen circumstance. And, and I love it because in the United States, of course, yeah, you pretty much have to provide documentation. Like, anytime, <laughs> you know, anytime you show up late or don't show up. But... But Brazilian culture is just so laid back about it. And I almost think, and you could tell me, obviously, you'd know better than I would. But I almost think it's like, you know, the environment in Brazil, in Brazil is is just so unforgiving in terms of just the heat and 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 the rain. And you can imagine it went, you know, during the colonial period when, you know, they were dealing with the jungle and everything, that it was just the land of imprevistos. Um that's my impression. I don't know if you have a take on it or not, but mm, my, I think that's a <laughs> that's a foreigner's impression. All right, you know? and All I right. think uh, uh, Reg uh, Reginald Daniel yeah. mentions that in in one of I think the first chapter of of his um, of his book comparing Brazil with the United States mm -hmm. that when the Portuguese 
confronted all the the lush uh, forest and all those to them exotic animals that the whole thing terrified them right and of course like really really hot tropical heat and uh and yeah a lot of rain a very uh mountainous terrain but i think um there's that the the laid back but there's also this this structure this hierarchy so it's it's not anything goes you know yeah the and, and the problem is you don't know when something doesn't go you don't necessarily know everything here um, when you apply for a job you apply for uh to university you apply to school you have to take an exam it, there's always an exam, a written okay. exam, sometimes an, an oral exam as well. And um, to me, that's not laid back because like in comparison with the United States, oh, your, your CV will do, right? But here, uh, and letters of recommendation, but here the, the, there's a CV and then there's the exam. And, um, you know, people prepare for the exam. And then on top of that, if the exam is scheduled for 7 a.m., at 7 a.m., they will close the gates, and then there will be no imprevisto. Like, that won't cut it, you know. Oh, but the bus was late. Oh, the, the subway wasn't working. Well, too bad. Try again next year, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I think I think this whole aconteceu imprevisto is, is more for, like, informal relationships, friends. Like, sometimes I'm walking down the street here in Rio, and people are talking on the phone, They're obviously lying. It's like, yeah, I'm I'm downtown already. <laughs> I'm almost there. I was like, God, they're they're not in downtown. Yeah. <laughs> they're in Zona Sul. But you know, so but for a job, I think it would be quite different. Talking with Reginald and and also from what I know or from what I learned about the you know Brazilian culture, there there's there's a lot of unspoken code. In Brazil, that from the outside, uh, like you said, appears much different than it is, and I guess that's a it's a good way to to set up really what I'm you know what I'm interested in driving at today, which is based on my conversations with Reginald and and the other conversations I've had in this series. the The interesting thing I've I've found is that Brazil and and the U.S. in terms of how they dealt with the issue of slavery, how they dealt with the period of um, emancipation was, was much, much different. A lot having to do with the fact that in, in America, it was far easier to officially segregate the races legally. It was a lot easier to establish laws that prevented mm-hmm. the African-American population from getting the same uh, education, buying the right. same, you know, buying in the same neighborhoods, all these things. It was a lot easier to legally instill that. And, Brazil, on the other hand, just because of the the ethnic and racial makeup, couldn't really do that. The thing we looked at in in, our, in the episode with Reginald was the idea of the one drop rule in the U.S., mm-hmm. where you know if you have one shred of African ancestry, that you are effectively black, and and legally that qualifies you differently. In in uh, again during the 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 Jim Crow and and post emancipation era, but in Brazil, it seems what happened is. And you can correct me if I'm wrong here. It, it seems like the they the that they abolished slavery, and the newly emancipated 
the newly emancipated slaves were effectively left to kind of figure it out on their own. And so essentially what they did is they kind of re- returned to a life of slavery in all but name effectively. Is that, is that a fair interpretation of kind of how that happened? Or? I think so to a certain extent. But then that part, I think, is similar to the United States because what happened in the South in the United States was after emancipation was sharecropping. Mm-hmm. Given the fact that they never gave them forty acres and a and a mule, the the former enslaved uh, population, what what was there left for them to do but to continue to work in the land, sharing the crop, but which really meant um, the whole family works together from little kids to older people, and uh, at the end of the year, they always owed the. Um, the owner, the, the landowner, they always owe them all because, you know, they, they owe them rent or they owe them uh, for the, the supplies or something. So they were constantly, um, uh, and they were kept to the land, right? Yeah. So yeah. that part, I think, is similar. You know, they, they continue to, like, they were raising uh, uh, cotton and tobacco and, uh, you know, the same thing that they did during slavery. And in Brazil, uh yeah, there were many who remained tied to the land uh, because that's all they they knew how to do. And then then there were the ones who many went to the cities and and there were already a number of city slaves, right? Rio, for example, lots of uh, enslaved uh, people. But then once they they uh, they were um, slavery was abolished. It's like okay, now you're free. <laughs> Yeah, what are you going to do? How are you going to compete, really, on the job market? But I wanted to to mention two other things um, based on what you you asked me. I think one big difference, uh, well, there are a number of differences, but one big difference between the United States and Brazil was that the, the enslaved population in Brazil was a lot larger than in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Right, slavery covered... Uh, almost the entire Brazilian territory, as opposed to the United States. So that's one. Another is that slavery was abolished in installments in Brazil. First, in 1871, and then there is already an abolitionist movement, and there is pressure from Great Britain. Uh, An abolitionist movement uh, in Brazil and outside pressure from Great Britain to to abolish uh, slavery, you know, um, slave trade is is forbidden. So in 1871, um, there was the law of the free womb, Lei do Ventre Livre, which stipulated that from then on, the children, any child born of a, a slave woman was free, was born free. Mm-hmm. Then in 1885, there was the, the law of the sexagenarian. So any slave 60 years of age or older was now free. And only in 1888, the Golden Law, Lei Aurea, was signed and that abolished slavery completely. But if we think about it, the a child born of a slave woman, in what practical way was that child free? Who was going to take care of the child? <laughs> right 
Then uh, a 60-year-old, the, the, the slave that was, I don't know if lucky or not, but who lived to be 60 or older, oh, now you're free. What was his or her um, health by that time? You know? So then, but that, that freed the, the former owners of any responsibility for taking care of them. So again, for all intents and purposes, that was kind of like... Well, you're not a slave, but you're dependent, right? You're not really free. And, um, and then I think that the one-drop rule, as Reginald mentioned uh, quite uh, correctly, is a major difference between uh, Brazil and the United States. But I, it's important to keep in mind that, that's, that to see race as either or is no more right than seeing race as a mixture, mm -hmm. right? So, um, so in the United States, the the new law stipulated that from 1896 on, but they had to convince people that from now on they were no longer mixed, right? They were no longer mulatto or or octoroon or quadroon or whatever they uh, they were. And that also created the whole system of passing, which shows that this one-drop rule only works up to a point, right? Because then, yeah, you're saying that from now on, I'm no longer black, but I look white enough that I'm going to live among you and your people, and, uh, and I'm going to pretend to be white, and I'm going to get away with it. So... It's really a matter of interpretation, right? It's like seeing, I'm seeing white, but I'm going to say that it's black. That's yeah. the one yeah. problem. Yeah, and, and there's, and, and that's the odd thing. I, I think that the area where maybe the, the two countries really differ because in a lot of ways, and it, it seems like it, because the U.S. had such an institutional system of, uh, segregation built into it, uh, and such a such a and a, and and a, and a legal system of of racism. Mm -hmm. It was easier in a lot of ways for the U.S. to take action against it because ah, it's true, easy, yeah. You, you know, I agree. Whereas in 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 Brazil, it it seems like th that that racial hierarchy that that is graded by the lightness of your skin mm -hmm. is largely unspoken and so there's not there's not a law you can repeal or or in some cases maybe even a law you can write to rectify a policy that nobody or a policy that nobody talks about am, am i wrong there or uh, i'm trying to ascertain whether you're wrong i don't yeah. think you're wrong but you know the the thing is uh, you're right that in, in Brazil's case, and Degler mentions that in his book, uh, his classic 1971 book, uh, Neither Black Nor White, that, uh, that the, the social relations were such that people knew their place in quotations. You know? mm -hmm. that's, the, that's a big thing in Brazil. Who do you think you are? Um, so, so that in many cases was enough to establish that hierarchy so that a law was not necessary, 
right? It, was, it wasn't necessary to do it legally because the assumption was that people are not equal in the first place, as opposed to the United States, where there's this principle of equality that starts when the, the country is uh, founded, that then the country has to grapple with, the society has to grapple with ad infinitum, right? Well, but you, you claim here that we are all the same, that we're all equal, not all the same, that we're all equal. So then how come I can't go to the same schools? Like, how come I can't even go to school? How come I can't go to this job? So that, um, the principle of equality before the law, right? Whereas in in Brazil, um, it's that the custom was, I think, because slavery was so pervasive, and I think also because, in, in many cases in in Brazil, the slaves really did all the work, as opposed to in the United States. Most people didn't have tons of slaves in the United States, right? And uh, even those who had slaves often worked alongside their slaves. So the, this idea of gone with the wind is not necessarily true for the majority of, um, of you know, of slavery in the United States. Whereas here, I think practically all the work was, was done by slaves. So then once they are no longer enslaved, but they still look like they, you know, they, they either were slaves or they descended from somebody who was slaves, keep yourself uh, in your place. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does, and it's it's it culturally, it sounds similar to you know the the South here in the U.S., where there and there's more of an I think an unspoken mm-hmm. rule of where where white people belong and where where African Americans belong. And again, uh, you know, I, I think. And so, and so, I think that that it that it cer- and it certainly exists here beyond the South for sure, um, although not as maybe not as culturally rigid as as it might be down there. The one question I had for you is so, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I learned about during the the Reconstruction era and 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 the Civil Rights era as well is one of the benefits the U.S. had was. Uh, during the Reconstruction era, there was an effort made to try and acclimate uh, the African American population, the newly emancipated population, to life as free people. And so, even though that never quite fulfilled its mission, you know, there was the attempt to, for example, found schools and and improve education and there and 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 so on. And I do think that those efforts, in a lot of ways, along with, like you said, our our Constitution, the fact that it explicitly says all men are created equal, which I think is probably one of the greatest historical examples of the law of unintended consequences that you have mm-hmm. a, a group of slave owners just accidentally, <laughs> you know, happen, yeah. to, happen to lay the <laughs> groundwork for abolition. But in, in a lot of ways, you have this, you have this sort of foundation that creates an environment where people can ask questions as to why don't why can't I buy a house here? Why can't I go to this school? Why can't I use the same bathroom as you? At what point did people in Brazil start to question that unspoken hierarchy or question some of the inequities between um, between the white and black population in terms of income and literacy and you know any statistic related to well-being you can name? Like when did that when did that start to become a question or a popular question in culture? Okay, a popular question because a question it it's been a question 
ever since slavery was uh, installed, because as you may know, there were uh, different strands of Africans who came to Brazil. And um, uh, one strand were the Malays, who were Muslim. And uh, so they were literate, they read the Quran, and they were very um, instrumental in slave revolts. You know, so, and they paid with their lives. But there were constant revolts, which is something that that is not talked about that much, right? Oh, yeah, no, like the, yeah, they were there on the plantation, and then they created music and they danced. It's like no, yeah, and they were plotting. You may have heard of the quilombos, right? <laughs> which which is the equivalent, the Brazilian equivalent of maroon societies. So. They fled plantations and they went into the, the hinterland and, and uh, stayed there. And uh, to this day, there are, uh, there's a population of, of um, descendants of Quilombolish people who, who the Constitution of um, 1988 acknowledged as, uh, you know, land belonging to them, just as like an indigenous population has the right to to their land according to the constitution of 1988. But so there have been all these, uh, there, there were all these um, a number of slave revolts in Bahia and uh, elsewhere in, in Brazil. But in addition to that, um, you know, there was an abolitionist movement that was interracial, that was, um, that had a number of figures like former slaves or, or those who were never slaves, who, you know, for, um, because they were attached to the Catholic Church or they, they had gotten an education or, uh, you know, some benevolent landowner, but, you know, or through other means. But it, there was a, a, a group of people who were questioning this inequality. And after slavery was abolished, you know, there's also a, a large tradition, you know, in the 1920s, 1930s, the, the, the Brazilian um, Black Front, you know, questioning the inequality. And, um, but, but all those, those um, all that questioning, those movements were in a way, how should I put it? They didn't reach the majority of the black population of the population of African descent in Brazil, because there's this other ideology of uh, miscegenation and whitening that is very strong. So now, as far as the the contemporary uh, policies that try to address racial inequality, then the moment is 1978. You know, Brazil had been in a dictatorship, military dictatorship from 1964 to, um, to 1985. But it's in, in 1978, 79, there is this period of so-called opening, abertura politica. In 1978, there was this, this demonstration in Sao Paulo, which is the largest city in Brazil, of course, um, when... Uh, the, the black movement was uh, founded. And uh, again, this is not to say that there wasn't a movement, but it was the unified black movement that started out of this demonstration denouncing racism in Brazil. And, uh, and, and you know, from there, 
all those studies showing the inequality, but it was still, you know, there have been all those years of, you know, suppressing those studies. It was, uh, as a matter of fact, subversive to claim that there was racism in Brazil during the military dictatorship. And, uh, but then from 78 on, there are all these, there's this um, um, focus on racial inequality. And so there's both uh, um, an activist movement and there are, there's scholarly work uh, showing that, that there is indeed uh, inequality that cannot be reduced to social inequality because that's the other thing that is common in Brazil. It's, it's not racial inequality. It, it's really social inequality, but because um, most blacks are economically and uh, uh, lower status, then it appears that it's racial inequality, but it isn't. The minute they, they achieve a higher social status, they will suffer no discrimination, which is not true, right? But that's, that's, the, that's the way a lot of um, Brazilians will talk about, you know, this, this whole issue. It seems, and I, I guess in my earlier comment too, it seems like it's, it's a lot more difficult to decipher in Brazil. And it's a lot easier to maybe raise a smokescreen and say, well, it's not race, it's, it's, it's economic. And then, right. and, then, and then by that, refute the benefits of any affirmative action or, or any, any attempt to rectify, uh, rectify it. I guess at what point did the government actually start to try and Im implement either policies of affirmative action or other policies designed to counter some of the, the, the racist structure of Brazil in the past? Well, in the mid-1990s, uh, uh, there were a series of um, symposium about, promoted by the federal government about racial discrimination in Brazil. But it was, um, you know, a push by the by um, activists and and uh, bringing up information about affirmative action in in the United States, how it had worked, that uh, promoted that that discussion here, which of course was mired in controversy because then people would say a lot of Brazilians would say, no, that's that's just not us. This is an imported policy. We're not racist. They're racist, but we're not. And um, and then in, in 2002, and 2002, 2003, um, the State University of Rio was the first university to implement um, quotas, university quotas as an affirmative action policy. Uh, and that was that was a decision by the, the Legislative Assembly of Rio de Janeiro. So then there was the other controversy because people, including university professors, said, but we were not consulted. We were not part of the discussion. There was no debate that was just imposed on us. But yeah, it was, yeah, the, the university in Rio and one university in um, Bahia, in Salvador, Bahia, and uh, in another university in the state of Rio de Janeiro, not the city of Rio. And, um, and the idea was to set aside a percentage of the slots in the college entrance exams or, 
or what not, no, the slots, right, which are based on, on grades on, uh, in the college entrance exam. To, um, to people of African descent, Afro-descendants, and, uh, and students who had gone to public school, because that's the social component, right? When people say, oh, well, it's not a matter of race, it's social. For example, most, most blacks and the poor go to public schools, and public schools have been crumbling pre-college in Brazil so that they cannot compete when they go and um, take the college entrance exams, university entrance exams. They, they don't make enough points. There is the exam again for you, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in yeah. Brazil, when you go, when you apply, you don't, you take an exam and depending on the points you enter or not, and it's not a matter of, there's no, oh, let me submit my, let me submit you my uh, CV and letters of recommendation and extracurricular activities. None of that matters. It's like, how many points did you did you score? Oh, no, you didn't score enough points to get in. Or, you know, the prestigious universities will, will demand uh, higher scores because there's more competition. So if you can't do it, tough, right? That's the history. And then, um, but then in the 1980s, there were um, schools that were created for the needy, and uh, and many of whom were were black, of course, to prepare them for college entrance exams. Because that's the other thing: like uh, middle class students will go to a school, like historically, for the the year prior to the college entrance exams, just to practice mm-hmm. taking the test. So, like in our last year of high school, we're not supposed to be learning um, much new material. It's really to hone in all those, you know, the formula for this, formula for that in physics and math and, you know, and this date and, and, and chemistry and, and, you know, writing compositions because um, you have to write a composition in Portuguese and another one in a foreign language and, you know, all of that. So... There was another uh, movement that, that was a completely outside of, the, of government. That was like, uh, you know, a, a non-governmental uh, initiative. And the other part of the controversy was people saying, but how can we say who is black? If this, if, if this policy sets aside slots for, for those who, who are Afro-descendant, well, first of all, most of us are, are Afro-descendant. So at that moment... Brazilians recognize that, yeah, we are the largest country. Um, we are the country with the largest African uh, population outside of Africa. No, we're all we're all mixed. We're all, you know, part African. So then uh, who was to say who who qualifies or not? And then the other one was, um, well, but depending on how much, you know, depending on the context, which is true about Brazil, right? Depending on the context, one can be white, one can be brunette, one can be uh, black, it depends. So then who is black here? We don't know. To which the the black movement, the black um, movement activists would answer, ask the police. The police know because (laughs) Brazil is also the country that kills uh, the largest number of uh, blacks in the world, 
most of whom are young men between the ages of 15 and 29. Is that an issue that's been tackled at all, or, or is that something that is behind a whole number of other issues? <laughs> Both. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, because there was a statute of, of disarmament that was mm. passed and, and um, that was approved in 2003. Uh, there was this whole movement for the population to... Um, to um, give up their guns and um, and and now, but well, there was also contested, right? It has been contested, but now there is, there's, oh, how should I put it? There's the whole issue of well, we have to arm ourselves because the criminals are armed. So and many times they are better equipped than than the police and then civilians. So we have to have that. But the thing is, uh, in terms of training the police to recognize who is a criminal, who is not, and not necessarily based on the color of their skin or where they live, uh, yeah, that's lacking, I would say. Not to jump away from that, I, I want to get back to that, but in terms of the, on the education side of things, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I was reading about is that you have instances in universities in Brazil where students are actually kicked out for allegedly impersonating a given race. How does that play out? Are there legitimately people trying to pass themselves off as darker than they are? Or is it a case where, again, it's, it's maybe another story that's blown out of proportion in an effort to discredit what is largely a policy that that's working no well the policy uh the results show that the policies have been working right i wrote a book i wrote two books about it right yeah um one in portuguese one in english so your audience is in english confronting affirmative action in brazil university quota students and the quest for racial justice uh overall nationwide the results are very positive there has been a, a tremendous a significant increase in the number of of college graduates who are not white uh which used to be a tiny minority when i went to university you know undergraduate in in rio but throughout the country there are you know especially in the number of uh First-generation um, college graduates, people whose parents had a third-grade education. So, and there's also uh, uh, data showing that that uh, the majority of the graduates are being successful on, on the job market. So, yes, they they have been working, and yes, there are instances of fraud. Um, and the fraud comes from the whole, the way that Brazil sees race. If we think about it logically, if uh, the ideology is there is a gradation, the idea a color gradation. If the ideology uh, is that um, well, somebody can be the child of a black person with a white person, and you know that these two, this couple has three children and each one of them is one color. This is very common in Brazil. People say, yeah, I'm white, but my, my brother is black. My other brother is mulatto, you know, that kind of thing. Then people can be or not black, right? So then in some cases, 
um, thinking of the case of a, of a guy who applied, a medical doctor who had, you know, um, even studied at Harvard, who was well-to-do, came from a well-to-do family. He applied uh, for um, a graduate program and he claimed, he applied as, as you know, Afro-descendant. But, you know, his skin is white, He's like white, green eyes. There's like his whole life he had lived as a white person. But then he claimed, no, I'm not being fraudulent. Um, you know, some of my relatives, I, I have a great grandparent who was black. I have a, a, a grandparent who was from the Northeast, who, you know, the majority of, of, of which Northeastern, North, Northeastern population is um has lower socio socioeconomic status and said, oh, some of my, I have a, a, a Jewish ancestor. So, you know, I'm mixed and uh, I'm not being fraudulent. But the, the counter argument to that is, yeah, but in Brazil, it's the, the color of the skin that matters, right? The people who tend to be discriminated against, killed by the police because, oh, I thought he was, uh, the criminal, I thought he was robbing, I thought this and that, are the darker skinned people, not the light skinned one, not the one who, oh yeah, uh, uh, I may be black. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. The, 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 uh, like applying the, the policy as a clear cut thing is harder in Brazil because of that, because it, you, we cannot, I don't think, do away with uh, centuries of a of a way of thinking, you know, and I'm not saying that this way of thinking is false consciousness either, right? It's the way it, the society has been organized, just as, you know, oh, from now on, we're going to institute the one drop rule. And, you know, after over 100 years, it's like, yeah, people really believe right in the United States that no, that was no, she looks, I thought she was white, but she's really she has black in her. She's black. But, but she's still white, you know, her, her skin is white. Uh, and so here in Brazil to to establish a, a law that is dependent on, um, that, that kind of goes counter to the, to the way of thinking, right? But that was instituted because that way of thinking leads people to believe that there's no racism. See how complicated it is? It's so complicated. I mean, I, I, th I think about, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about my upbringing. And now I, I grew up in the, the Boston area in the, the 1980s. Uh, Boston, I think like most of America for that part, was a you know, pretty segregated city. You had uh -huh. white yeah. neighborhoods, you had black neighborhoods. And, and, and there were very few, you know, by the time I was growing up, there were very few truly integrated neighborhoods. And a lot had to do with uh, busing, I think. Um, and, yes. you know, and, and, and so if, if I'm thinking about how racism perpetuates here, you know, you're almost able to say, well, it's a lack of familiarity. Because if you grow up in an all-white neighborhood and the only images you see of darker-skinned people are 
either on the news being portrayed as criminals or in movies being portrayed as criminals, and you are naturally going to attach an element of danger to people who are darker skinned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the odd thing about Brazil is that, yeah, you have, for, for the most part, you have families that are interracial. I mean, I have one uh, friend of mine who is, uh, his family's from Belo Horizonte, and when I see uh, pictures of him going down to visit his family, he's white. And again, his relatives are all shades. And so it, it's, it, and, and you know, you can, you can maybe explain it a little better than I can, but you know, it, it all, it almost seems like you can't blame it on a lack of familiarity and you can't blame it on a lack of an, in, of integration. It almost goes back to this, you know, philosophy that started when the first European settlers stepped into the new world, which is the idea that there is a, that the, the, the lighter your skin, the further up in the hierarchy you are effectively. Right. And that's, right. is, is that, I mean, it seems to be as basic as that. And, and that seems to be dry. I mean, I, I'm sure it has, has its influence here. And, and it sounds like that's kind of what's driving it there. And it just, it's a philosophy that takes that, that people really have to acknowledge and then try and un, try and consciously unwind. Um, yeah, absolutely. Nowadays, uh, uh, that is called colorism, right? It's become sort of a buzzword, um, and it's not a new phenomenon. But colorism um, is is strong in Brazil, and it's very strong in the United States. It's it's interesting because while people, while society was saying, while the law was saying, in the United States, you're either white or you're not white. Uh, people were acting in terms of colorism among blacks, right? Uh, the you know the whole idea of like the better class of colored people, people who tended to be lighter skinned because they got um, they were um, related to slave owners and maybe they got. Uh, uh, manumission earlier, maybe they got uh, some inheritance, but that was particularly common in in Louisiana, right? Uh, so, and to this day, I mentioned I mentioned this in in my book that there was a there was a, an article by Yaba Black, uh, was a political scientist, and and she writes in her article that she's very dark skinned. And she's from New Orleans, and then a, a friend of hers was getting married, and uh, she hadn't been invited to the weddings. Like she learned of the wedding through from another friend, and so she approached the the bride and said, "Well, you you know, I heard you're getting married." And said, "Oh yeah, no, yeah, I'm sorry, but I, I I can't invite you because my grandmother would be you know offended some of some something to that effect because she was so dark-skinned one of my big goals in in doing this series was really to highlight that and was really to to make sure that people understood and and by people i should probably say white people because i think anyone any person of color in the united states already knows this but was to was to make people understand that there is a there are some subconscious mechanisms at work that mm-hmm. often play into how someone is perceived and how someone's treated. And if you're not aware of that, if you don't acknowledge that, and if you don't consciously work to identify when that's popping up in your own behavior, then these things are just going to perpetuate. 
uh, and 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 I feel like it's it's important in the United States, and I'm not going to speak for Brazil, but I you know I'll say. I'll say probably what's good for us is good for Brazil as well. Uh, yeah, I think it's important to to really for people to really like understand that, and 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 understand that in themselves because again, until we do that, these th- this is this is just going to keep popping up. One thing I, I I wanted to ask you about as well is with affirmative action in in Brazil and in the U.S. A lot of times we we talk in terms of education, and and right now the conversation is focused around college education, university level education, and it's even a big conversation in the current presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. But I, I almost feel like by the time you get to college age, it's almost too late. And in a lot of ways, again, in my mind, I feel like if there's an investment to be made that can truly bridge the racial divide, and and again, in the United States, in Brazil, you know, truly bring about racial equality when it comes to not just education, but income, job opportunities, and so on, it seems like heavy investing in K-12 education is really where we could see the most impact. And would you disagree there or? I could not agree with you more. As a matter of fact, I finished my book with that idea precisely because one, uh, even cognitively speaking, it may be too late by the time people get to college. Now, this is may not be politically correct to say, but um, there's a reason we learn fractions. This is my always my, you know my example. Uh, there's a reason we learn fractions in the third grade because fractions are very abstract in a way, right? We need our brain needs to be uh, developed in such a way, mature enough to understand abstract uh, thinking. Because up to age seven, eight, we're very concrete. Right. Like uh, uh, if we say if you say to a child in English, oh, that person is broke, the child is not going to understand it. I mean, a six year old as oh that that person uh, went bankrupt. The person can't pay their bills. Now, the the child is going to interpret it's like, well, there's some part of the person that is literally broken. So there's certain things that that, that's called basic education, as you said, uh, K through 12 that we have to have before we get to college. Otherwise, we're going to college, but it's not really college, right? If there is that that whole, oh, you need a, a year of remedial education, or you need a year of, um, you know, um, um, recycling this information or something to that effect. Um, no, I think that we need to invest, even for... Um, for children, by the time they get to college, that, that they're better able to make decisions about what they want to do with their lives. Uh, the other reason is that nowhere in the world does the majority of the population go to college. Nowhere. And uh, it's always a minority. And then, you know, some places it's 20%, 25%. But it, we're not going to have 100% of people going to college. And and so what happens to those who don't go to college? Are we going to depend solely on a college degree in order to be able to make a living once we graduate? Or should there be other venues? I believe so. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think that, that that's a very important uh, discussion. In Brazil's case, like public education is crumbling. Uh, the salaries of, of uh, teachers are not livable. In many cases, there is also the lack of prestige attached to the to the occupation of teacher, like the teaching occupation. There was a time in Brazil when when um, education was really a privilege. You know, it was like in my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation for sure. It was common for people not even to finish uh, primary school, and uh, at that time. It was very prestigious for young women to become teachers. You know, that was the respectable um, occupation for a young woman if she were to work at all, right, in Brazil. Brazil is, you know, patriarchal society. You know, women should be homemakers. But if she's going to work at all, no, this, that's respectable to go to normal school and, uh, and come out a, a teacher. Nowadays... It, it's lost prestige, right? But the prestige has decreased at the same time or along the, the, the time when more when education became more widespread, if you understand what I'm saying. You know, when it was more uh, an elite thing to go to school, then being a teacher was a respectable occupation. Once it became more widespread, um, it's lost uh a lot of its prestige. I want to kind of get back to, to one, of the, one of the things you talked about earlier, which is the issue of police violence specifically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's, I, I know there's a, a phrase in Brazil, money whitens, you know, the, the, the effective meaning being that if you're of a certain income level, you're, the color of your skin doesn't matter so much. And, um, and, and, you know, we've talked a lot about education being a way to lift people out of poverty, uh-huh. but also kind of, kind of shorten that uh, racial divide, you know, at the same time in the United States, and I don't know the stats in Brazil, but, you know, in the United States, statistically speaking, if you are darker skinned, regardless of income level, uh, regardless of dress, regardless of anything, you are more likely to encounter police violence. And I and I say right. this too with a qualifier that I have a, a number of friends who are police officers, you know, all of whom go to their job uh, with the sole purpose of of doing the right thing in their community. Uh, but you know, at the same time, the the numbers don't lie, and right racial profiling. Yeah, and and so is there. If if we look ahead, is it just an issue of of, of and I and I'm, I'm sorry to use the phrase is it just an issue of money whitening? Is it just an issue of we put these educational policies in place that racial income divide starts to shorten and a lot of these other issues start to disappear with it, or are there other things that need to be looked at in order to again address issues like uh, uh, disproportionate use of 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 police violence, or for that matter, you know, salaries, job promotions, things like that? Well, the answer is B. <laughs> yeah, okay, I figured. <laughs> I think that was a rhetorical question. It was, we, because... we weren't going to get off that easy, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because if we go back to, to what we discussed before, the way people think, right, the, the assumptions that people make, 
about based on what people look like, then just going, just getting a college degree is not going to be enough. Because especially in a country such as Brazil, where race, cla racial classification is so contextual. So in order for, for somebody uh, who is darker skinned to be, um, to be treated, you know, to, for people to assume that, that they're not there to serve, right, putting, putting it bluntly, in order for that to happen, the, people's mentality would have to change. But how many years would it take for that mentality to, to change? Because, and, and, how, and what would make it change? Well, one way would be for them to see more people uh, who are darker skinned and are, uh, you know, have, are in higher occupations, are in more prestigious occupations, professions. Okay, fine. But how long will it take? Um, because even if we have... If like all things being equal, if all of a sudden, sudden we decided, society decided, from now on, all salaries will be, um, you know, equal in, in, you know, like race will not matter at all. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, you know, we'll keep, uh, we'll do away with the salary inequality based on race, which is what happens in Brazil and the United States right now. Even if that happened uh, now, what about the past discrimination? Would it also disappear? No, it wouldn't. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and th that's that's something that other people have mentioned. Like if we if we made everything, if, if we gave a lot of incentives for non-whites to do better right now, would we stop whites from uh, continuing their path? No, so the inequality would continue. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right? So yeah. then it, it's not, that's not enough, right? So in other words, there are uh, concrete measures that need to be taken. For example, to make the salaries uh, equal, right? Like, oh, all doctors, all medical doctors uh, of a certain experience will receive the same salary regardless of race, regardless of gender, which is another uh, important variable. Meanwhile, what do people need to do, these medical doctors, for example? Do, do they walk about with uh, a label, hello, uh, I'm a medical doctor? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, because the, I think the, the automatic thing is for people to assume that they're not medical doctors. Right? And from time to time, we hear these cases in Brazil and in the United States. Like somebody is, is, wasn't there a case in the United States, I think last year on a, on a flight, somebody got sick and they, you know, who's a doctor here? And the woman uh, wanted to treat this, this passenger who was a doctor and they, they didn't believe her. Did you, do you remember reading something about I, that? I do. I do. And I can't cite it, but I don't even think I need to because it just sounds believable enough. Right. Yeah. And then in Brazil, um, a few years ago, there was the case of this guy who was having, um, you know, he, he, he had, he suffered from hypertension. So he was having some sort of um, peak of uh, high blood pressure. And, and so he, he was admitted to the hospital. And when he got there, uh, the emergency room doctor who was dark skinned went to treat him and he, he wouldn't let him treat him. It's like, no, I don't want an orderly. 
uh, treating me. It's like, I'm not an orderly. I am the emergency room cardiologist. Like, well, don't touch me. I don't want somebody like you touching me. So this person was willing to die rather than being be touched by somebody who was dark skinned. So even in that context, it's a <laughs> hospital. He's wearing a doctor's uniform, a, doc- a doctor's coat, all of that. No, I still don't believe that you're competent. So policies um, alone are not going to fix the, the problem. Yep. Right. But then I, because uh, this, this sounds also gloomy, then we, I would like to remind myself <laughs> and, and everybody hearing this that nobody's born a racist. But by age four, the racist socialization is already ingrained. So that's another thing to, to keep in mind, right? If we're going to change things um, on a larger scale, um, we have to institute some sort of um, socialization for, for integration, socialization for acceptance. It has to start uh, really at pre-K or K. When we're that little, we really don't make a distinction. And if we, we might even see, at first we don't see the, the, the difference. Like we don't see color. Then we start seeing color, but we just see it as, as different. You know, this color, red, black is different from white. And only later, only after age four, do we start saying black is different from white and white is better. The one thing that stood out to me the most about this episode was that by age four, children are racially socialized, meaning they've developed their preconceptions about other races and themselves by then. Uh, In more homogenous parts of the United States, such as the neighborhood I grew up in, this means that even if you lived in a household where you were taught the idea of racial quality, as I was, you still carry those perceptions with you. And if there's a takeaway in all this, it's that policy changes are only part of the solution. And we really have to be conscious of the assumptions we make, the ones we effectively were more or less born with, and our feelings towards others if we're going to move forward. And I think it's better to be humbly aware of your shortcomings and try to consciously act against them than to be some woke big mouth on social media. Now, I don't want to discount the policy side of the equation either, though. You know, the other thing Vanya said was that providing equal access to quality K-12 education is another way we can begin to bridge the racial divide. And while free college is great, it's only good if you're prepared for it, and it's only good if you want a job that you need to go to college for. And in my mind, Funding the first 13 years of education seems like a great way to start preparing people for either the workforce or for that free university education that may or may not be offered. Now, this isn't the first time education came up either. In our series on the national debt, we saw how a lack of investment in education was part of what led to the decline of Great Britain as the predominant global power in the 19th century. And so for March we're going to be covering education. So sharpen your pencils, kiddos. We are going to school. To kick things off next week, I'm going to be speaking with Hillary Green, professor of history at the University of Alabama and author of Educational Reconstruction, 
African-American Schools in the Urban South, 1865 to 1890, to discuss the educational reform in the South during Reconstruction and the economic growth that followed. That is what we call a dovetail, folks. Now, I mentioned this on an earlier show, but all episodes and write-ups on set episodes can now be found on my website, ydhty.com. That again is Y as in you, D as in don't, H as in have, you can fill out the rest.com. Per usual, soon to be returning theme music by Fellertack. You don't have to yell is produced by Magic Elves under the wizened guidance of the big Geno Jason Putney, all else courtesy of moi, Dan Sally. Until the next. <laughs>